X's for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one and making our way through the misadventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants. I'm your co-host, Nico, and I could not be more excited today. I have with me the best possible co-host. You guys know him from the background of episodes of Now and Again and this show. I know him from being the sexiest, most amazing guy in the entire world and my husband. Kevo, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Hey, everyone. They know you're sexy, they know yeah. you're my husband, they know you're amazing. They might not know that you're an amazing co-writer and colorist over with me on Riot Squad at KidRiotComics.com. Yeah. It's amazing that you make comics. I love that we make comics together. Tell me a little bit more about your involvement with comics and the medium and how you got into comics. Oh yeah, sure. Growing up, most of my experience with comics was old Archie and Dennis the Menace Digest that I read growing up. A lot of comic strips. I was really into Calvin and Hobbes as a kid. Comic stories, more like what we'll be talking about today, I my early experience with that was reprintings in Disney Adventures magazine, which was a children's periodical that Disney put out when I was a kid. And one thing they did was a special colorized reprinting of the entire first volume of the Jeff Smith book, Bone. It was my first experience with that sort of serialized graphic novel storytelling, and I really loved it when I was a kid. And it's something that stuck with me all through through middle school and high school and then finally I looked into it senior year of high school and discovered there had been eight more volumes produced and it had literally just ended the month that I uh, looked it up after being in production for almost 10-15 years and so I devoured the whole thing in almost a month. Since then uh, a lot of my comic experience I would say is things that you have taught me sir. As everyone knows you are Nicopedia. You are a font of knowledge about all things but most especially comic books. That's one of the things I am the most proud of, some of the people I've helped bring to comics. I know you've read a bunch of Daredevil with me. You've read some X-Men. We're diving into someone a little bit different. So Captain Britain, at this point, only kind of tangentially relates to the X-Men. Captain Britain was Marvel trying to create a market for their characters in the UK by creating a UK character. Captain America was a symbol of American pride, and it was really a good idea to try and create a mirror of that for the UK. They tapped Chris Claremont, who was born in the UK. He came up with, yeah, this guy, Captain Britain. It was published a little bit unusually by our standards. We've been reading Uncanny X-Men and the Champions, as well as these characters' appearances and other titles. Captain Britain was published in eight page, uh, six to eight-page stories in Captain Britain Weekly, which featured reprints in black and white and color of original Marvel titles from the U.S. The first several issues feature a black-and-white Fantastic Four reprint, as well as a full-color Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. reprint. These books were printed at magazine size, so they're even bigger than a normal comic book. I'm a pretty crazy big Captain Britain fan. I grew up reading Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men, so I always had you know great affinity for Psylocke and Excalibur, where I fell in love with Captain Britain. A long time ago, I actually tracked down the original Captain Britain weeklies in their gritty, shitty newspaper magazine printy form. Yeah, they're super cool. Yeah, and uh, they're signed. I have mine signed by Claremont. I love them passionately, and I have them with me here. Uh, one of the things I want to point out, just how different the experience can be from reading the book for real to reading the reprint. The reprint 
I have in the Captain Britain Birth of a Legend hardcover that Marvel produced in the early 2010 era has put the pinup from the last page of the magazine as the first page of the book. And that actually really dramatically changes the way it reads. So some of what we're going to be talking about is with hindsight gloves on. We've discussed how that happens with classic X-Men, and this is an example of where it happens somewhere else. To give a little bit more information about the Captain Britain material we're going to be reading, Captain Britain had originally been published as Captain Britain Weekly 1 through 39. He was then shifted over to a combined title, Super Spider-Man and Captain Britain, which I believe was numbers like 231 to 255. He would go on to bounce around Marvel superhero titles before eventually getting his own title again under Alan Moore. But that's getting a little bit ahead of myself. The entirety of the material that we're going to be discussing for Captain Britain prior to his appearances in the United States titles is going to be available in three hardcovers. Unfortunately, at least one of them is out of print, but you should be able to find them somewhere. Volume 1 is Captain Britain, Birth of a Legend. It features Captain Britain Weekly 1 through 39, as well as a number of the Super Spider-Man issues. I think it's two of them. Then there's Volume 2, Siege of Camelot, which contains the remainder of his original run, Marvel Team-Up 65-66. It will also feature the Incredible Otherworld Saga, featuring the Black Knight. Ultimately, Captain Britain will be collected finally in the Captain Britain Omnibus, by Alan Moore, Alan Davis, and Jamie Delano, which would then see Psylocke and Captain Britain come over to the United States. That pretty much covers everything you need to cover to understand Captain Britain's UK appearances. There are other titles like Knights of Pendragon, but their connection to Captain Britain's canon is dubious. We're going to be taking a look at Captain Britain 1 through 27. Now, I understand that sounds like a daunting task, but at six pages an issue, it's roughly going to be a fourth of what you think it is. And man, does it feel like less than that when you really look at it. So Captain Britain numbers one and two present the captain's origin. Brian Braddock is just your average gorgeous, rich, muscular, brilliant engineering student who's really clumsy and doesn't know how to talk to the girls and gets picked on by the local bully whose name is Jocko Tanner. I, I can't. Anyway, he's at his local laboratory where he works when a robbery turns bad. He tries to escape, but dies, and is resurrected by two magical figures in the sky who give him the option between picking the Amulet of Right or the Sword of Might. Brian chooses the Amulet and is rewarded by becoming Captain Britain. He returns to England where he battles Joshua Stagg, the Reaver, the really garbage, throwaway bad guy. He fights some people dressed as knights and then is just like, oh, well, I guess I'm Captain Britain now. Captain Britain's 3 through 7 see Captain Britain versus the Hurricane, which is really interesting because the Hurricane is like a guy who controls whether he got his powers from a hurricane. Uh, and this is the same time that Chris Claremont is writing Storm over on X-Men. Captain Britain also runs afoul of the local law, Di Thomas, but forms a bond with local lady cop Kate Frazier. He also then fights off the villainous Hurricane at some point in the arc. Captain Britain 8 through 13 feature the Cap versus a powerful psychic named Dr. Sin in a plan that involves Jamie and Betsy, Brian's siblings. After Sin targets Betsy, Brian reveals his identity to Jamie in an effort to help save his sister but doesn't really seem to have anything to do with the plot. The battle for Betsy's soul becomes increasingly confusing as we discover that Sin was powered by a supercomputer inside Braddock Manor and is only defeated when a housekeeper unplugs the computer, aging Sin into an old man and he dies in front of Brian. It's just like... Yeah, it's really, I can't, it's, I know I talked about how much I love Captain Britain, but I do not love him for his early adventures. Cap 14 through 15, it's, Cap fights that supercomputer who now calls himself Mastermind. Mastermind reveals to 
Cap that his parents died when Captain Britain was on a date, which temporarily drives Captain Britain to suicide. And he's defeated when the same maid who unplugged the computer distracts the computer. Anyway, Captain Britain 16 through 27 is a complex plot involving Captain America, Nick Fury, the Red Skull, a lot of faking dead, but seems to have nothing to do with Captain Britain. Nothing to do with Captain Britain. So long. To talk a little bit about these creative teams, Captain Britain 1 through 27 actually doesn't have too many creative names attached. Chris Claremont wrote 1 through 10. Gary Friedrich wrote 11 through 23. And Gary Friedrich with Larry Lieber wrote 24 through 27. Art duties are going to be Herb Trimp on 1 through 10 and 11 through 23 as well as John Buscema on 24 through 27. Herb Tripp is actually best known for drawing the first ever Wolverine story, Incredible Hulk 180-181. John Buscema is a legend in the industry. So there's a lot of really high-profile artists on this title. And, you know, Chris Claremont. It's unfortunate that the book is never that good. Ah. Let's talk Captain Britain. Let's get into the real nitty-gritty of it. Yeah, let's do this. Knowing what I know now, owning the original Captain Britain comics... Knowing that that splash page isn't actually the introduction, like, massively changes the story completely somehow, even though it doesn't? No, I get that, because this starts in Media Res, which is always an interesting choice for an origin story. But knowing that it starts in Media Res, not with that iconic splash page as an opener, but rather him facing off those two little tin men with their guns holding his quarterstaff, it's a very different imagery to open up on and be introduced to the character on much more iconic in the hardcover than it is as it was originally published i would say oh definitely because it actually makes an interesting i don't want to say like sin of comics but the inside page of the magazine cover is the first page of the story yeah the first few pages of the issue are a battle against someone you might think would become important it's this golden knight with this giant purple plume on his helm yeah And it it makes it seem like it might be important, and it's two pages, and the entire time Brian is like, oh, these powers are so new, these powers are so new. They make it really clear that he's totally new to this. It's just kind of relentless how hardcore they're trying to make you, the reader, aware this character is first appearing ever right now. And then immediately they pivot to a flashback, which is very this era of comics, I'm not judging it. I kind of don't feel like I have any idea who Captain Britain is, and then all of a sudden I'm meeting Brian Braddock, his young, gorgeous, brilliant alter ego, who evidently is a genius, and you really need to see this fucking whacked out Spider-meets-Pope-mobile, crazy Baba Yaga chicken hut robot monster that is the thing that... The thing that Strag rolls into the facility in is... uh, Definitely very over the top. I need to pull you back a second, though, because you glanced right over Brian Braddock. You keep glancing over the fact that he smokes a pipe. He's literally smoking like a classic old pipe in the middle of this scientific facility. And I'm like, that's an interesting choice on a couple of different levels to give this character, especially in their first appearance. But sure, okay. It ages him terribly. Every time time I read this, I'm always like, there's no way he's a college student. He's got to be like 35 if he's standing there smoking a pipe like that. And he's enormous. Yes. They do go out of their way to be like, oh, he's stronger and more coordinated as Captain Britain. I got to be real. He's no slouch as Brian either, though. No. We fast forward into the Susian machine that is attacking. (laughs) There's this actually really great classic running image of Brian on like the the fifth or sixth page of the story. And it kind of coming together as like like a classic 70s action comic a little bit almost. 
I feel the Eldritch magic staff and giant sword combination is a little bit more incongruous about the magic stuff and Brian escaping on a motorcycle. Yeah, but the panel where Brian screams, I'm going off a cliff, I actually kind of need to turn that into a meme because I think that would be highly popular that so many people feel that way about live right now. But it's so dramatic and almost hysterical enough to take me out of the drama. Oh, I agree completely. I think Strag is supposed to be like a human being and he's this like gnarled Mr. Hyde monster. Yeah. I make a number of notes about how despite the fact that these are some actually really high profile, well-liked, well-loved even artists, a lot of this is pretty rough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we literally see Brian's body burning in the fire for like half a second. And then it turns out he's like crawled away and he's like really doesn't look that bad for a guy who just motorcycle crashed off a cliff and is supposed to be dying. When a giant, big, scary white figure in the sky who is standing next to Cher offer him to either pick the sword of might or the amulet of right. And then they immediately end the issue. Yeah, that is an abrupt ending. I don't mean to talk about my own stuff in the middle of talking about much more famous things, but I feel like Kid Riot says a lot more in eight pages than I felt I got from this eight-page first comic. It felt like it just went very fast, just very fast. And it didn't even have, like, characterization. That's one of the things that's really rough. Early on, we've talked about how a lot of the characters don't really feel like people. They feel like notions. Brian, especially at this moment, is generic good guy, white superhero billionaire. Yeah, there's not really a lot to him except for that pipe. Unfortunately, the Brian I love doesn't surface for quite a while, but, you know, we will get glimpses. Like, I actually don't hate the next issue. Brian says that he doesn't want might. He wants to pick the amulet. He becomes Captain Britain. It actually almost seems painful to become Captain Britain. It says that the images are tearing at him. It's louder than he can stand what's happening to him. It seems as if he's being ripped apart by turning into Captain Britain, which is like... Dramatic. Very dramatic. Yeah, it's pretty dramatic. And then we're treated to a giant splash page in which it looks like a couple of Cobra Commander versions of the Thor Destroyer are trying to body slam or penetrate Captain Britain. I'm not sure, but I definitely think Falcon Studios has produced this film. Yeah, it's like a weird armored BDSM version of the foot is all trying to, like, tackle Brian to the ground. Brian wins. He saves the day. He's Captain Britain now. Everyone celebrates. There's just not a lot here. Both the first and second issues came with free bonuses. The first issue came with a Captain Britain mask, which was like a cardboard mask that you held in front of your face. And the other one came with Captain Britain's boomerang. Ah. His what? His what? His what? What? His what? So I would also like to point out the last page, like in black and white, and it's color it yourself. Oh my God. It kind of makes it seem like perhaps the colorist did not finish the book on time. It's almost not worth pointing out as well, but I still kind of have to. I know it's an old comic, but at the same time, just some of this dialogue, man, they just, they so telegraph every single moment of the action through the dialogue. It's just so much. Sometimes. Now my will is hurling Reaver's beam back into him. Oh, thanks, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know. As we make our way to the next arc, Captain Britain fights... My notes literally says, ah, classic Claremontian Claremontianisms. Win. We pick up immediately with Captain Britain as Brian in the middle of... A hyper-terrorist hostage situation at a bank? 
Yeah, seriously. And Brian just happens to be there. I don't hate it. I'm not like, this is the worst, but I don't love it. Brian wears this giant BDSM chain around his neck like a good pup. Ah. And that's how he transforms into Captain Britain. You got to see this thing. Like, I mean, he literally wears like a fucking anchor medallion around his neck. And he uses it, he transforms into Captain Britain, and he just immediately takes out all the bad guys. And I'm not saying, like, that's a thing, but this is just, it's like, I don't understand why this is the first issue of this arc. There is something so generic about every page of Captain Britain at this point. So far, it's just, like, eldritch and and science. And they're such a weird villain set because they are so heavily armored and armed. And yet, when one knocks Brian out... The bank manager is like, if you've killed him, and the guy's like, I haven't, Mr. Manager. I know my trade better than that. It's just such a polite little heist where no one is getting hurt. It's really bizarre and toothless and random. I have to be real. There's places where the art on this book get... I don't even know how to describe what some of the color in this book looks like. It goes from a totally normal colored comic to super orange sometimes... And once again, those incredibly weirdly colored pages in my original in full color weekly magazine form are black and white. It literally seems like the colorist kept running out of time for the last page. Girl, I've been there. Still didn't do this. Just saying, though. Yeah. The last page is just super generic. And then we get to the next issue that's supposed to be the first issue of him versus the hurricane. Oh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna temporarily address Jacko Tanner at all? This bizarre character that we have introduced? How is this arrival for Brian Braddock in any way? Guy's got a perm. They are rivals because they are vying for the affection of a woman named Courtney Ross. Courtney Ross seems explicitly and exclusively interested in Brian. Oh yeah. And seems to have no time, patience, or interest in Jacko. Frankly, uh, has no patience or interest with anyone who is going to get in her face. She specifically says to him, you make one more crack about Brian and I'm going to forget I'm a lady. That is an intense first line to give a female character and I'm loving it. A hundred percent. Oh man, we get back to that, that orange page. This sharpie highlighter colored nightmare. It's bad, y'all. It's really terrible. The hurricane is introduced in this really uninteresting way he's just like ah, i'm the hurricane and i'm here and i'm gonna fight captain britain he's the first british superhero no he's not no he's not there cannot have been no british superheroes because there was union jack so i'm not sure what to do with that but so the hurricane is just like this super generic guy who's just unbelievably more powerful than captain britain it's a little ridiculous how much more powerful than captain britain he is i actually don't think there really is a whole lot going on here that makes this notable i just actually have two big points there's a moment in six that's too stupid to be believed and there's a moment in seven i really like in six the hurricane literally straps captain britain to a jet (laughs) in number seven brian escapes while chained up as captain britain by detransforming and then transforming again because he is literally a different size person as Captain Britain. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Right? I super duper followed Claremont on that journey. I thought that was really cool. See, the thing is, I actually like the Hurricane as a villain of all of the early comics that I have read. The Hurricane is the first, second villain I have seen a hero go up against that I have really liked. Right up until we got to his origin, 
which is just truly bizarre. Like, he's some sort of weather scientist who, when he's doing this research thing in this plane he invented, it's sabotaged because people don't believe in him, and it explodes, and it throws him out into the ocean. And there's no explanation as to how he survives this fall, or what any of this origin has to do with anything. It's just really, really weird, and it ends very suddenly. You know, especially because he's not even introduced into the last page of issue three. Everything about three through seven is just, it feels very strongly mismanaged. I liked him as a villain, but I don't think that he was used very well. And I think you're making a lot of really great points. I agree with you. There's a lot to think could be good. And then there's so much that doesn't work for me. Oh, and before we move on, I also want to make sure that we jump to, uh, there's a scene where there's a building collapse, and Courtney Ross is a character who specifically jumps in to help try and save people from the rubble, and when Captain Britain tells her to go easy on herself, she sort of yells at him and says, I'll stop when the job is done, not before. Like, she's a really amazing female character for 1977, like, right off the bat, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, she gets an interesting, I don't know if it's a fair shake or an unfair shake, but I do agree. She, at this point, is a really dynamic, exciting character. It's why uh, she's one of the characters that Claremont eventually brings over with him to Marvel team up for the two Captain Britain issues. So to go from a villain who was underused in a dry way to a, I don't even know how to talk about this one. Well, Dr. Sin, we start out in the middle of another kind of random fight and... We meet beloved lady cop Kate Frazier. <laughs> like, I, I don't even, ha- I can't even form words. There's this scene from this NBC sitcom, A Trial and Error. It takes place in this very small southern town, and they talk about how it's illegal for a woman to drive unless there is somebody running in front of her, waving flags, shouting, Lady Driver! And when it happens in the first episode, you roll your eyes because you're like, there's no way that that joke can sustain. But the entire flipping season, anytime you saw a woman driving a car, there was a young man running in front of it, waving flags, going, Lady Driver! And that is literally where I go every time I see a woman who is a police officer referred to as a lady cop. Because it's so far every time anyone has shown up. And I'm like, just say police officer. This issue that we're talking about where there's so much Kate Frazier, it does introduce two other things. Number one, we get the amazingness that is Psylocke, Betsy, and an early blonde appearance (laughs) before she's got her slick purple hair. But also... This is the issue where we find out that Kate Frazier has murdered and she doesn't want to have to murder again. Not again. I don't know her. So. (laughs) And that's such a perfect way of putting that, too, because we don't know you. We don't know who you killed and we don't really feel like we should care yet. Just stop. And the the whole crux of this arc is Sin has mind control powers Like, that's the whole crux of this arc, and it's a little too much back and forth. Sin is using his telepathy to to mess with Betsy's mind and make her see certain things. Then Jamie and Brian... I'm getting so ahead of myself. This issue is just like, it's this whole arc is just so dumb. And it goes on and on, and it goes over and over in these weird little circles. Sin controls Betsy's mind and makes her try to attack Brian. Brian has to reveal that he is Captain Britain to Jamie, and... Yeah, that was a surprise for so early on, to be honest. Yeah, and then, like, Claremont leaves halfway through the arc. 
he actually leaves in issue 10 and Gary Friedrich picks up in issue 11. That means the first half is written by one writer and the second half is written by another. And it shows that this is not written by one person. There's this part where Sin says that he's going to turn Betsy into the ultimate weapon against Brian. It's the next thing you know, because there's one point where like she sees Brian and he's a demon and it's so much about mind control and illusions and telepathy. And there's this part where Sin says that he's going to turn Betsy into his ultimate weapon to destroy Brian. And then the remainder of the arc has nothing to do with that. The remainder of the arc is Brian out in the woods fighting Sin's random thugs to save some woman that's going to be burned at the stake while Jamie stays back at the manor with Betsy. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that tends to come up in the next in this arc and in the next few arcs, it's 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 a lot of random twists and turns that feel like they come out of nowhere. The fact that this doctor that they happen to run into is also being controlled by Doctor Sin, you're gonna see that happening a lot going forward. You know, I know that we're reading a superhero comic, so to some degree you have to s- suspend your disbelief, but you can really only suspend your disbelief so many times in a row. Speaking of suspending disbelief. The fact that the bad guy is actually powered by a supercomputer in Braddock Manor that is then defeated when the housekeeper we didn't know about unplugs it. And let's be clear, this housekeeper is like eight different kinds of offensive. She debates whether she should continue to follow her dead master's wishes not to clean his lab, then decides, nah, fuck his memory, and goes for it. And it just so happens to be on the night that Brian absolutely needed her to unplug the computer. Like, it's really weird. So then the whole thing kind of, it comes to a screeching halt out of nowhere. There's so much like fire, lady tied to the stake, then trying to kill Captain Britain with fire. And when the computer's unplugged, it releases its control on Sin, who immediately ages into an old man, dies, and is like, I worked for your parents. Ugh, dead. One thing I want to call attention to, it's pretty random, but something I noted was I really appreciated there's a moment where uh, this dude, you know, abandons his friend in terror. And you would sort of expect from 1977 for Captain Britain to basically call him a pussy coward. And he doesn't. And I thought that that was just a really cool moment of him actually being a superhero who understands that not everyone has his bravery or his skill and being chill about someone fleeing for their lives. Yeah, one of the things is Brian is very human. He's This arc doesn't so much end as it just sort of like morphs into the next arc. Yeah. It just sort of turns out that the bad guy really was another bad guy instead. It's a giant-headed supercomputer robot mega killer bad guy. I can't even explain it. It's like a giant light hologram, and it confronts Brian with the fact that he was on a date when his parents died. Oh, and we see his parents die in a terrible explosion, actually. It's not the strongest issue in the world. Frankly, the whole circumstance that Brian is supposed to be made to feel guilty by makes me really uncomfortable. He's out on a date, and it turns out that his parents were specifically murdered by his father's own invention, but somehow it's Brian's fault for being a little bit late because he was trying to score. His parents are like, when they go down to check on the computer that leads to their murder, are like, perhaps it'll keep me from fretting about the boy. Is he not in uni by now? Like, how... Is he responsible for your computer murdering you? It's just so bizarre, and the fact that that guilt drives him to be suicidal. I'm like, too much. The line it literally is, I allowed only what is unimportant. Go ahead, kill me. 
I no longer desire to live. Yup, verbatim. Brian defeats the supercomputer when the same housekeeper opens the door, and that's all he needs. That's it. I forgot my dustpan. Have to get what in? And then that's it. And he defeats the supercomputer by breaking it. He goes to carry his housekeeper to the police to get her help, I guess. Yeah, she did. Nope. Okay. And Mastermind will continue to appear throughout the entire UK run. Sure. We get a brief appearance from Captain America and Nick Fury in the middle of the issue before we head back to Brian, who has shown up at the police station to get help for the injured woman. And Di Thomas is immediately like, unmask yourself! Unmask yourself! And you're just like, why? 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 I specifically hate characters like this. I never feel like they are very strongly motivated. They always just come across like they're just being assholes to be assholes. I rarely feel like I see a character like this where I am sympathetic of why they are like this. Absolutely. He's just J. Jonah Jameson with a badge, and that's no better. The last panel of issue 15 is Di Thomas with his hand under the top of Brian's mask, literally like pulling it off. Like, again, this is a Falcon video. And then the first <laughs> panel of the next page is instead, I can't even explain how Di Thomas is taking Brian's mask off on the next page instead. He seems to have scooped into Brian's top nostrils. It turns out Brian's nostrils open on the top from this image. He's hooked his thumb into Brian's closed mouth. And as he's about to pull this mask off, Captain America shows up and is like, no, I want to fight him. What? There's there's something to the concept of Captain America showing up and saving Captain Britain. And Kevo just pointed out to me that I'd forgotten the most ridiculous thing. Not only is there a page that introduces Nick Fury and Captain America in 15, but there's a series of panels that introduces the bad guy of this arc. And actually, you know what? If you look really closely at the third panel, you can just make out who it is. It's funny because we had just mentioned that going from Dr. Sin into Mastermind was the person you thought was the bad guy wasn't, and now here's the real bad guy. Now this transition is basically, well, they left this computer vacant, so I'm just going to sit down and be the next villain of this series. And it's just this, it's the way that they keep transitioning from one arc into the next is so bizarre. And give yourselves a little bit of room to breathe. Captain Britain Weekly only ran 39 issues. This arc kicks off at issue 16 and runs till 27. The halfway point of the series is roughly issue 18 or 19. This is going to see Captain Britain transition into the latter half of its run. Quickly, the arc becomes about Captain Britain and Captain America squaring off for a moment. We discover the villain is the Red Skull. This is all happening in such succession of the Sin stuff. I just want to point that out, that this is still the same, like weak as this it's the same day he's literally carrying his maid from the mastermind fight to the police station early on in 16 you're kind of hopeful that maybe this will be a good arc for captain britain because captain america's there and it's not (laughs) it's just like people fighting and once captain britain and captain america stop comparing i mean they're largely the same but captain britain is uncut captain america explains that he's here to investigate a supercomputer which i'm not sure It can be the same supercomputer from the last arc. It can't be. It was literally just Jamie and Betsy are still in that building. And yet it clearly and repeatedly for the rest of this arc definitively is the same goddamn computer. 
and we get so many new characters, it's almost impossible to believe there's room for Captain Britain in this arc. He imme- They immediately get into a fight against the Red Skull and his Nazi henchmen. While that's going on, Nick Fury has this thing going on where he meets Todd Radcliffe, head of Strike, the British Shield, which, that's kind of cute. Yeah, it is kind of cute. I gotta say, there's a panel where Cap is fighting off a Nazi and says the war's been over more than 30 years, and you Nazi knuckleheads still haven't got the message, namely that you just ain't wanted, and I'm like, ah, Cap. Ah, Cap. You just don't even know, buddy. Things are gonna start picking up. 16 introduces Cap to Cap, and they sort of square off, then they stop squaring off, then they square off against some Nazis. The ending has them getting poison gassed. Turns out Radcliffe is working for the Skull. I mean, there have only been 12 pages of this. Everything is fucking crazy. It's so weird they pack so much story into 12 pages because absolutely nothing is about to happen for the next five issues. And again, weird stuff. They get gassed in a secret cell that Brian did not know was underneath Braddock Manor. And I'm like, how much do you not know about your own house? Not only do they get gassed and manage to just get away, then at the end of 18... They die in an explosion. 19 opens with a military funeral for them. There's two caskets, one with the British flag and one with the American flag. Nick Fury is literally slumped over Cap's casket, devastated. His best friend is dead. This is the first break in the action since issue 8, and it's coming at issue 19. Cap's just dead. In Captain Britain Weekly, Cap is just dead. Of course he's not, as he appears suddenly in the next issue. Dum Dum Dugan helping Captain Britain train against Captain America. Turns out they're life model decoys. Of course they're dead. Yeah, and like, that scene was just the weirdest fucking fake out. Fury walks in and is like, oh my god, and Dum Dum Dugan is like, oh, sorry Nick, I didn't know you'd take it this way. They aren't real, they're just LMDs. It's like, you didn't know that he would take thinking that they were alive again what way? What kind of prank is that? Yeah, and I just don't know how Dum Dum got anything signed off without Nick's help. And then (laughs) there's this weird thing where the cab LMD just kind of collapses. I saw it. The next issue opens up with the cover of The Times, and it says... Britain mourns fallen heroes, and it's a picture of Captain America and Captain Britain posed together. When the fuck did they pose together for a picture? And the name of the issue is While the World Gently Weeps. That's so dramatic. I just, at this point, I don't think that the book can get more ridiculous. And then there's the sequence of of the skull looking up at a picture of Hitler like, Aw man, I can't wait to make you proud, Dad. Yeah, he's got this, like, weird profile image, uh, portrait of Hitler just hanging on his wall. <laughs> and he just sort of puts his hand up next to it longingly as he talks about, you know, one day I'm gonna make you proud. So it can't get more ridiculous, right? Oh, wait. Oh, wait, wait. Then it does. It turns out this entire time, the time it took them to get military funerals, the time it took for the newspaper to print it, Nick to believe they were dead, and then be shocked by the life model decoys that prove they are not dead. In the time it took this, it turns out Captain Britain and Captain America have been hitchhiking, looking for a ride on the side of the road just a few miles away. Still in costume, by the way. Undamaged costume. Quick interesting note that I would like to point to. It has only been 10 issues since Jamie found out that Brian Braddock was Captain Britain. And I must say, it feels like it's a very fast 10 issues. I feel like these went much more quickly than the first 10 did. 
but I'm not exactly saying that's a compliment. I'm saying it feels like five seconds because this has been one continuous story that hasn't really gone anywhere. Feels like it hasn't gone anywhere. 16, 13 ends with it turns out Sin wasn't really the bad guy. 15 ends with Mastermind was defeated by being unplugged. 16 is Brian's going to be unmasked, but then he's not unmasked because Captain America shows up and then Captain America and Captain Britain start crossing swords and then they work together to fight Nazis. They get poison gas, but they survive, but then they die, but then they survived, but then it turns out it wasn't them, but then it turns out they did survive. It, they're buying time. They're just buying so much time. And it's really starting to exhaust me. And I also feel the need to point out, does anybody not know that Brian Braddock is Captain Britain right now? Because Captain America references Jamie and Betsy being Captain Britain's siblings, so he must know that he is Brian. Then Jamie completely blows up his spot at the end when Brian shows up in Captain Britain garb and he's like, how do I know that you're my brother and not just a faker? Like, you said that in front of Betsy. I guess Betsy knows now. Thanks, Jamie. Meanwhile, there are two people who don't know. Courtney Ross and Jack O'Tanner show back up in the 19th issue for a little bit. We had traded Brian's school chums for his family at some point, and I actually do think that had been a smarter move. I think the generic MJ and Harry stand-ins didn't work, so or Flash Thompson for that matter. So they did need to switch over to the family, but we do actually get them back for a minute. Courtney is like, Oh man, I wish I knew your secrets, Brian. And we cut to Brian not being dead. And it's just like, it's fine. And at the same time, I don't know. I I feel like they really did lose track of everything. And this is the point where they haven't even changed writers again. But it still feels like Gary Friedrich isn't thinking about the next issue when he's writing this issue. Especially when it's weekly. I'm really starting to get that kind of like soap opera burnout. Yeah, and now we come to a really dramatic moment in the story, and you can tell it's a really dramatic moment in the story because three pages in a row all exclaim they've kidnapped the Prime Minister, which is the start of us getting to understand what Red Skull's plot has been for the last several issues. Yeah, no, for real. The plan was for the Red Skull to teleport the Prime Minister to his lair. I don't know why that required Captain A or Captain B killed. Captain Britain spends two pages revealing to his family that he's Brian rather than just doing it in a single panel. And that wastes precious time. Like, yeah, I get it. Jamie tells him the prime minister was taken. They agree to rush into action. The Nazis try to stop them. Cap takes down this one Nazi who's trying to escape. And it just, it's just like, I don't know why I just had to wait three or four issues for this. There hasn't been enough plot and I'm, I'm burnt out. And we're going to start getting into some really actually silly excuses to slow down the action like at one point cap america is trying to get through to fury and get to strike headquarters he has to tell the operator that he doesn't have any coins and they should reverse the charges and then the person doesn't believe that he's captain america over at strike headquarters you're telling me that there's no code word or passphrase that he would have to let them know that he is who he says he is i know it's 1977 but that just feels like a huge oversight there starts to be so much back and forth that it gets to be really dumb then gets to be the thing that i just don't even know what to do with at midnight the skull is going to kill the prime minister and release a germ bomb and then we get a page of nick fury having a nightmare that it has already happened complete with children crying in the street looking for their dying mothers why do we have this page what purpose did it serve it's just buying more time. I'm really getting frustrated with the amount of space wasting to keep this seven pages every week. If this was a monthly title, this would have been that like three fourths of the book literally never happens. It just keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. 
out of nowhere, the book makes it like a tremendous change. The book goes from full color to black and white at issue 24. But to make up for it, they return the free gift, like the boomerang and the mask from the first issue. Kevo, do you want to tell them what amazing Captain Britain authentic prop it is? Captain Britain's super jet. You got, you guys know that, that famous Captain Britain prop, right? His jet. We've been talking about it the entire episode, so I'm sure you do. Yeah. The whole thing involves shit happening around Big Ben. So then I'm kind of like, is that like if everything in New York happened at the Statue of Liberty? I don't even understand. The whole thing hinges, like, I mean, they're literally at one point in this arc hanging on the hour hand and minute hand of Big Ben. And I am pretty sure that it was not drawn to scale. Like, I don't think that it is absolutely in any way correct. It's bizarre, and there's so much fighting on Big Ben, and the ending is unbelievably anticlimactic. It doesn't seem like it ever gets anywhere. It just, Captain Britain just defeats the Red Skull. And again, there's just the most random slowdowns in the middle of this story. Captain Britain has to steal a police car to try and drive somewhere, and he's fumbling with the radio, and all of a sudden he goes, That dog directly ahead! I must swerve or I'll hit it! And crashes the car, but that doesn't affect the plot. He's awake, and he's still trying to communicate through the radio, and he gets his message through. Why did he almost hit that dog? And then Die Thomas tries to, like, stop him. Die Thomas is like, No! And literally the Prime Minister, who is so important that it was absolutely worth putting in caps lock three times in a row that he was kidnapped, this dude that they surrender the country for so that he's not killed, he's like, nah, Captain Britain's a good guy. And the police officer's like, nah, screw you. I think he's shit. What? What's even weirder is, like, the ending is pathetic. Actually weirdly pathetic. Red Skull just sort of, like, is defeated and teleports away. Hickory Dickory is what it is titled, by the way. It really is that at one point the Red Skull just kind of reaches his arm out as like mini teleporter must reach it and teleport away, manages to reach it and teleport away. The final panel is him reaching for it in one issue and the next issue is just he's teleporting away. Yeah, and that's it. Jimmy Carter shows up and tells them they did a good job. They all move on. Everybody says goodbye. No, for real. Like, I mean, it's just this simple. Everybody says goodbye. Captain Britain literally takes a cab home and then realizes he doesn't have his wallet, so he stiffs the cabbie, and that's it. We're treated to a couple of panels, uh, possibly redrawn or maybe even just traced of his origin again to kind of refresh readers who haven't seen it in half a year. But at this point, they are really at Captain Britain number 27. There's only 39. He only has another four, three, four months of publishing. That's it. He's reaching the end of his solo initial run. I honestly don't know that I've learned anything about him from these 27 six-page issues. And it's interesting the way that they reframe his origin for this little recap. They definitely mention both the amulet and the sword. They show both Beard Dude and Crown Lady and both of them talking. And they mention Reaver, but they do not say anything about him taking the Sword of Might. So it's interesting that they went so far out of their way as to mention that Reaver is the person that he was fleeing from, but didn't say anything about him taking the sword and getting powers and them having that fight. It, the whole thing becomes this this weird attempt to make Captain Britain whatever they need him to be at the time. The book at this point has yet to have any sort of firmly established identity. The first two issues are this sort of weird mix of eldritch and science. Then we get this like kind of like a mutant versus Captain Britain story that had some crime elements. Then it's this weird, almost like psychological horror thriller kind of thing. And then there's a weird robot 
that's not a robot. It's a projection of an evil holographic computer. I don't know. And then it's this weird shield plot that Captain Britain lifts right out of. Red Skull doesn't become a consistent Captain Britain villain. At this point, we have not yet met anyone who is going to be an ongoing Captain Britain villain. The first major recurring Cap Britain villain that will be introduced is actually going to be in his last original story before he heads over for Marvel Team Up, which is his last appearance for several years. You know, Kevo, we read what amounts to roughly seven issues of a regular comic book. It felt longer. Yeah, it really did. There just really wasn't enough to talk about in so much of this. That's something I'm really coming to discover because comics weren't meant to be reread back then. They're just not enough in each issue. So much of the drama is is random and manufactured. When Captains Britain and America are in a hospital at one point, they're beset upon by a random gang of thugs who just happen to randomly be ransacking this functioning hospital for things they can sell and they have nothing to do with the Nazi plot. And yet... Later, when they're looking for someone to help them while they are hitchhiking, it turns out that one of the two dudes that picked them up actually is a secret Nazi who kills his companion after the heroes are gone and, like, burns the card that was given to them and is, like, to the rise of the Fourth Reich. And I'm like, where did this random dude come from that they just happened to run into who is part of this plot so many things that just kept coming up over and over again had nothing to do with continuing the plot and everything to do with drawing out the action even longer and it didn't make for a great story which is sad because the bare bones of captain america and captain britain teaming up and the concept behind it was really cool and it was really fun to see And I can't agree with you more. I really can't. I fell in love with Captain Britain because of Excalibur. The first thing I was able to get my hands on, a little bit of Captain Britain history. Captain Britain rose to American prominence thanks to Chris Claremont's Excalibur. They printed the Captain Britain series, uh, Captain Britain Volume 2, 1 through 14 by Jamie Delano and Alan Davis in a trade paperback. They then printed some of the Alan Moore stories in something called X-Men Archives, which was a follow-up to X-Men Classic. You know, it's it's just so funny. It's like kind of hard to talk about Captain Britain's reprint history because the origin of Captain Britain was turned into three backup stories in Marvel Tales 131 to 133, which was an X-Men Classic of sorts for Spider-Man that didn't feature new material. And the first story was joined up and then split out into three stories for that. It's just really hard to even discuss how he came over. A lot of Excalibur trades feature his first two stories, the two-part origin, which again, we've even said is a bad indication of who Captain Britain is as a character. It doesn't even really line up, and unfortunately, and I hate to say it this way, the remainder of the material we're going to be discussing leading up to the Otherworld saga is not any better. It's really tra- it's really tragic that Captain Britain doesn't get a very good run until Alan Moore and Alan Davis. Yeah, it's really sad because there's a lot of things about this hero that I like. You know, we've made jokes about the props that he doesn't have. I don't think we've mentioned a single word about the prop that Captain Britain actually does have, which is his quarterstaff, which I think is actually a really excellent weapon. And I really appreciated the way that it was slowly developed over issues and we found out its different abilities over time rather than giving it to us all at once. The force field was really cool. Its limitations, not being able to block the nerve gas was really cool. The way that he discovered the final functionality of the blaster function was a little bit silly that Captain America noticed the third button and Brian was like, oh, I haven't tested it yet. But, you know, again, it's the 70s. I forgive. I don't. He's given magical superpowers by giant fucking creatures in the sky. And then he's like, all these powers. It's pretty interesting. I literally get bigger. I don't want to know what these buttons do. What? No, 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 no. 
I was being nice because I know you love him. But yeah, okay, it was pretty dumb for him never to have tested that before. But then again, you know, this is everything from the start of Dr. Sin, everything from issue eight through what we have finished is all continuous one story. So yeah, he's kind of been busy for 20 issues. You know, I think that's about it, man. Yeah, I can't really uh, think of anything else that I might have missed. The next time you guys see Kevo is going to be covering the other half of Captain Britain before returning for a special Uncanny Team-Up episode, which sees Captain Britain come over to the States, partnering with Spider-Man against soon-to-be longtime X-Men villain Arcade. Yeah. Kevo, where can your newfound fans find you on the internet? Oh, well, you can find me across all forms of social media at Kevo Really, one word. You can also find both of us at KidRiotComics.com, where we publish our book, Riot Squad, as well as its companion series, Capes and Boots. Check that out monthly. You can find me at NicoAction on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, sounds great, man. Great show. Great time. Great show. Great time. And we will see you guys soon. Woo!